Hey, this is Lamar. Thank you for tuning in to the Autism Pastor Podcast. In this episode, we jump back into our weekly discussion of my new book, Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. And so we're going to take you straight into the conversation on chapters three and four of my new book, Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. Enjoy. So any any questions about anything that you read or something that you want to revisit or comments, something that maybe you read and thought I need some more clarity on that um, or what was the thought behind that? Either put those in the chat or you can chime in right now before we jump into chapters five and six. So any any questions that you would like me to cover, any sections of the book that you would like me to revisit? All right. Well, if you have any, um, just utilize the chat uh, or you can just chime in at any time. So chapter five. uh, So the way that the book is broken down, um, the introduction all the way through chapters four um, was really designed to give you a good basis. So there's a lot of statistics. There's a lot of. Theology, scripture, things to try to get you set up to understand the issue, the challenges, uh, the observations over the years, even some other people I introduce you to who've been doing uh, this work in one way or the other, whether it's um, helping you make the connection between disability and diversity um, and some of the historical connections between that and minority populations I introduce you to people like Dr. Willie Jennings, to Nancy Eastland, if you've never heard of her, who wrote The Disabled God. Um, So it's really set up to introduce you to this world of of a actual discipline within the Christian faith that is not really well known, and that is disability theology, right? So many of us have been exposed to Various types of teachings over the years, uh, doctrine, things that have proceeded out of the Christian faith as important topics that we need to know and learn about um, that are very important to our Christian faith. Disability theology is a very, um, I don't want to say it's a, a, it's a new um, theological framework, but it's something that is not often understood or taught about. And so for a lot of people, it can be very new and in it being new, um, there's some things in there that probably push some buttons because it kind of poked against some of the things that perhaps we had always been taught um, or um, some references to some things that may seem like contradictions to some things that maybe we've taught. The, The goal in those first couple of chapters was to expose people who have not been exposed to it, but also honestly to to ruffle our feathers just a little bit to understand, you know, maybe there are some things that we have believed over the years that have not helped us to progress to the point where we are being more inclusive of persons with disabilities in their families. Uh, And so you kind of get the sense of that over those first four chapters plus the introduction, like there's a whole world of 
school of thought on this. And, you know, in order to make the book readable, um, cause it could have easily been like 500 pages. I skimmed the surface of that. So some of those people I'm going to encourage you that I introduce you to or make quotes from, I'm going to encourage you, uh, if you have time to look up their work, uh, and some of the things that they've done and some of the things that they've talked about as it pertains to this, because this is a relatively new discipline and especially in Western Christian tradition, um, I'm actively working now, honestly, to try to get some of what I talked about um, into some courses in seminaries and Bible colleges, because, and we'll talk about this, um, I think it's in chapter seven, so not all the, we won't talk about all of it tonight, but part of the, the challenge I see, and over the years that I've traveled and spoke at conferences is, um, I get a lot of great people. I may have mentioned this before, but I don't often get a, a lot of pastors and leaders and professors and those types of things at these conferences. One of the main things I see needing to happen is um, the the institutions that we are using to help supply our churches with, with leaders and thinkers. Those institutions need to become up to date on a lot of this information, because as long as we keep cranking out leaders of our churches who don't have a knowledge of this, then we're always going to struggle because as I've said before, uh, as a pastor, I know this to be true. Almost nothing happens in the church. That's not important to the pastors and leaders. So if we're going to be training people in the future to lead our churches, this is a topic that I think they need to come out of Bible college or seminary equipped with some basic knowledge. Um, otherwise we'll be spinning our wheels. So uh, part of it, and I talked about this in an interview the other day, was to appeal to pastors and leaders who are currently leading, appeal to seminaries. And I had a great conversation with the school yesterday about them using my book for some courses. Um, but part of it also was to give information to um, you know, your quote unquote, even though I don't also like, I don't always like this term, lay leaders, um, your non-clergy family members, people who are in the church putting something in their hand that they could, it's an easy read, but they can help to expose them to this so that they can have that intelligent conversation with their pastors. So that in a lot of ways, the way that I try to read, to write the book was to level the playing field. Sometimes what happens in churches is people have great ideas. Um, but more often than not, you know, your clergy, if they've come through Bible college or seminary and have advanced degrees, it can be a little bit intimidating to try to explain why you feel in your heart, like in your heart, you know, it's right, but it's hard to explain that to somebody who has studied a different discipline than you, who maybe has some level of, of knowledge of the Bible and other things that you don't have. So part of it was trying to level the playing field to say, okay, here's a tool that you can use. You can take this and be able to explain it very well um, and hold your own in a conversation with pastors and leaders. Um, and it will be something that they would be interested in reading. Um, so uh, I did get one um, message. I'll read that before I jump into chapter five, a uh, direct message in the chat. Uh my thoughts during this series are it's hard for me as someone with a disability who loves Jesus not to have recurring anger and sadness over performative culture in churches when it comes to inclusion. Um, 
it's hard to feel at home anywhere as someone of color who grew up in a low income family on the top of disability. And it's hard. It's hard to find true community on this journey. I, I would definitely, uh, definitely agree. Um, it is. You hit the nail on the head. Um, and I think some of the anger, I would say, is is justified because of the historically bad way that the church has handled this. So one, I'm, I, I validate those feelings. Um, I understand that. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the reason why I wrote the book the way that I did is because I, I do have a love for the church, but I'm also likewise very critical of the church. I think we haven't got it. We haven't got it down just yet. Although the historical church, first, second, third, fourth century, did a very good job at this. And I don't know, that might be another source of work. Either I write a paper on, probably not a book, but to trace when did when did we start veering away from that? Because if you study church history, the first, second, third, and probably fourth century, Christian church did this very well. Um, and they didn't have to call it disability ministry or special needs ministry. To them, it was, and I've said this before, it was just being obedient to the teachings of Jesus. Like there was no distinction uh, there. So even when it came to the diversity issue, um, it was something that they did very well. It wasn't without struggle. And you can read that like in the book of Acts, you can read parts of that in, in Galatians where they fight about some things like who gets to be in, who gets, what do you have to do to become a Christian? Do you have to follow Jewish law or not? Right. But um, the tension was there because they were intentional about making it inclusive. And I think um, part of what I suspect, if I could do a historical um, research on this, part of what I suspect is that, you know, from the beginning, and I may get myself in trouble from this, but in the beginning, you know, as we are creating this nation, part of it was to create a nation that that buffered and relieved the people who were coming here from the burden of having to... <clears throat> to suffer any of the things that they perceived as um, as they things that they perceived as suffering as they were coming out of British rule. So the overall philosophy in the beginning was to create an entire community and country that distanced itself from from suffering, from pain. Um, and when you do that, you end up creating an environment and an atmosphere that I don't want to say despises that, but has a distaste for anything that presents itself as um, competing with your ability to live life at its easiest. Um, so I think you will see a trajectory of the church following that path, right? Because that was sort of the beginning stage. And now we know there's a lot of ways that they went about that to create that that experience for only a certain group of people, right? So there was only a certain group of people that they were trying to create that experience for, which undoubtedly always happens. And I said this um, in a sermon, anytime you draw the lines about trying to decide who's in, nine times out of 10, you just on the other side of that line with the people that you've drawn out. And so in an effort to try to create an environment that's that certain groups of people uh, can live um, very comfortably, you almost indefinitely always find yourself becoming exclusionary. And I think if you study the trajectory of the church in the West, 
I think you'll find that's a lot of the reason why that has become a problem is that we don't want to have to go through anything that we went through while we were over in England. So when we set up our country, we're going to make sure that certain groups of people never have to experience any kind of suffering. But what it did is it drew a line uh, and the church followed that line. And it, we ended up not being as inclusive of of those various communities as we should be. Um, so don't hold me to that, but that's just some periphery research that I've done. I, I want to look more into that. Um, so definitely. Um, another uh, message, quote at the very beginning of page 100, I've often heard it said uh, that the pastor of church is not responsible for your personal growth. How would you counter or balance it regarding your seed quote? Um, great question. I was actually, that's where I was going to start. So um, the quote there is, um, uh, seed is not responsible for not producing. This is page 100 of chapter five, first uh, paragraph. A seed is not responsible for not producing. The environment must be right in order for the seed to grow. This is also true uh, with disability inclusion in our faith communities. It is time for the church to take ownership and create the type of environments that attract and nurture the gifts in the disability community. Building a learning culture is essential to creating that environment. So um, at the end of chapter four, I break down the four environments. And, and again, this is also um, based on the parable of the sower, uh, which you can read in Matthew. Uh, and so I use that as an analogy and really some insight into breaking down the three ways that Jesus says that actually blocks the seed from being able to grow. The, the reason why I use that is because, and the reason why I opened up chapter five with that, as we talk about building a learning culture is nowhere in that parable, Jesus teaches the parable. Then later on his disciples ask him what it means and he interprets it. But nowhere in that does he ever blame the seed. And I think it's an important thing to pay attention to. Um, oftentimes I teach people, don't just pay attention to what the Bible says or what Jesus says. Pay attention to what he doesn't say. Right. In that whole story, he's focusing on the reasons why the seed does not uh, produce is because of the soil, the environment. And so um, that's a great question um so i'll read again um you're often heard that the pastor of the church is not responsible for your personal growth um so yeah i i i get that and there's definitely some truth to that um because again the seed is designed and we know this i think a lot of times we we miss out on when jesus teaches these parables some of the things that we know naturally and instinctively we don't apply it spiritually so think about a seed right a seed contains within it all of the dna all the coding to become everything that god designed it to be right what it needs is to be placed in the right environment and be nurtured correctly in order to become what it's supposed to be so to a certain extent um yes the church is not necessarily responsible for what is already coded on the inside of you what god has created you to be right so there's a lot of ways to figure out what that is some churches do things like specifically in our church uh, we started doing this before covid uh, growth track where we would help people to understand you know their personality their spiritual gifts trying to get at what is it that god has placed on the inside of you um so so there is an aspect where to answer that question there is an aspect where you're responsible for placing yourself in a position to receive 
all of the nurturing and the teaching that you that you need to get to grow. So there is a responsibility part where, OK, I'm going to church, I'm reading my Bible, I'm positioning myself. What I'm suggesting is, is that I think the church may have leaned too heavily on uh, the first part of your question where it says that you're responsible for your own spiritual growth. Yeah, that's true. But the church is also responsible for creating environments that help accentuate the, the, the gifts and the things that God has placed on inside of you. So Jesus doesn't teach this parable to say you don't get to, to blame the seed, right? He's teaching this parable to say, no, here's some of the reasons why the seed is not producing fruit and it's the soil, uh, and oftentimes you see Jesus deal with this a lot, too, about people being in the right environment. So if you've read the one miracle where Jesus had to touch the man twice, remember the guy who was blind, they brought him to Jesus. And it says that Jesus led him out of the village of Bethsaida. Uh, and then he touched him and he said, do you see anything? And the man says, yeah, I see men, but they look like trees, which means that he had some frame of reference. I don't know if he was born blind or he went blind, but he has some form of reference, right? Because he's describing people, but they look like something else that he's had experience with trees. And then Jesus is the only place where Jesus had to, had to touch him again and healed him. Here's what's important about that story. I think we often miss Jesus warns him not to go back to that village. And if you trace through the history of Bethsaida and Corazon, those two cities that were together, uh, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus talks about how uh, those were villages and environments of, of such unbelief that he even says it would have been better off for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would have been for those two places, just because they were so unbelieving. Um, so I share that to say is that what Jesus knew about healing this guy and what he knows about the seed is oftentimes it's the environment. The reason why he told the guy don't go back is because there, it was an environment that was so filled with unbelief that it made it even difficult for Jesus to to get that a loss of vision off of him. Right. And so um, not to say that anything is hard, hard for Jesus, but you notice he had to touch him twice. Right. And then he warns him, don't go back there. I think that says a lot about the fact that we got to pay attention to environments when we're talking about um, a lot of these situations. And Jesus does that, too. It even talks about how um, because the environment in his hometown was one of such unbelief, Mark goes on to say, and he could do no more miracles there because the people didn't believe. Um, you've read that before. So a lot of times environment is extremely important um, to the extent that it can um, it can suffocate the work that God is trying to do. And I think what Jesus is saying in this parable of the sower is that it can be extremely challenging for persons to be in an environment that does, that is not conducive to them flourishing. Right. And so what I'm making the analogy to is saying that I believe this is true of why it's so difficult for persons with disabilities in their families. We've created environments that make it dang near impossible for them to flourish. And it's not the seed's fault. Whatever God has created them to be, whether it's a developmental, intellectual, or physical disability, it does not distort. It does not distract from their ability to become everything that God wants them to be. Now, for everybody, it's going to look different. And I tell parents, you know, I, I was diagnosed on the spectrum. I'm not saying your child is 
going to be like me. I'm not going to be like anyone else. But what I do know is, is when I'm placed in the right environment, I can reach my fullest potential and bear fruit, uh, which is the goal of every Christian life. So if you've read the parable, Jesus says, you know, the seed hits the ground. It, it doesn't grow because when he interprets it later, he says the bird snatches it away. And he later on says that the problem there is lack of understanding. Um, the second set of soil, he says that it hits the ground and it starts to grow. He actually says that they receive the message with joy. So it's not that they reject the gospel. They reject the message. They receive it with joy. When he later interprets it, he says that then it starts to grow and it withers away because the sun and he later interprets it as life's problems start to beat down on the plant. And it withers away because it doesn't have roots. Um, so I talk about that in chapter six. So the first group is it's the reason is that there's a lack of understanding. So this is why I said, OK, the first environment that we must create in our churches in order to make them disability inclusive is an environment of learning where there's a lack of understanding. Jesus ends up saying that the bird, which he interprets as the enemy. Actually, that's the only group that is targeted. If you notice that it is an intentional target to eat up what Jesus says, the seed and to leave people in a state of lack of understanding. And what it does, and I'll read this quote, is that it creates uh, not just a lack of understanding, but a lack of empathy. And so um, if you see on page 101, I talk about this um, halfway down in the top of the paragraph where it starts finally. Finally, we see a result of the evil one's target. That's Jesus's words. The heart is left empty. Building a learning culture will require filling the void left by a lack of understanding by using actionable intelligence. If the church has no heart for the disabled, there will be no home for them either. So part of the big challenge then is to create a environment in a church that is constantly willing to learn about disabilities of all various kinds and persons with disabilities, learn from them, um, learn from their families. Because again, Jesus says the issue with that environment is, is a lack of understanding and a lack of understanding almost always. I haven't seen this work in all my nearly 43 years of life. Anytime you have a lack of understanding with something, you have a lack of connection to it. You have a lack of empathy for it. Uh, and Jesus says that about the fact that this bird comes and just doesn't steal the seed. It steals the opportunity to have a heart for uh, because you don't have information. And so a large part of um, the first step and probably the longest um, step is to begin by creating an environment where the church is learning. So you think about this, how many churches are actually creating environments where, where it's not just a one-off, where there's always information being provided um, there's always something that is going on that is helping the church lean into this community that is often missing from our churches and learn more. Because the reality is, I don't think that most people are indifferent to the disability community. I think most people are ignorant. And I don't say that in a negative way. I just say that most of us don't. And I, and I admitted this on a podcast, uh, you know, until I was diagnosed, although I knew I had struggles my whole life. It wasn't something that I paid a lot of attention to either um, until I officially became a part of that community. And I started to realize, man, a lot of the challenges and struggles I had is linked to this. 
And if I had those significant challenges because of autism and not being able to understand people and people not understanding me and not understanding social cues and body language and how the church is constructed to actually not accentuate the parts of me that are actually really good at certain things. Um, then I realized that other people have had tremendous challenges and even those who have greater challenges than me are probably having great challenges with the church because by and large, the church is not built for persons with disabilities because most of how it was built was built by the same types of minds and the same types of experiences. So naturally, remember when I said, when you, when you start drawing lines, whether it's intentional or not, by definition, you start excluding people. When you create organizations where the majority of the people whose voice is brought to the table to shape what that organization looks like, eventually you will draw a line, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that will exclude people who don't have your experience. And that's been the problem with the church. So I don't know that it's indifferent so much as it is ignorance. Jesus says, one of the main reasons why this is a problem is lack of understanding, right? And he, so he says that first environment is one of um, creating a learning culture. On page 102, I talk about learning about this and even defining it. Um, and because this is a relatively new, when I say new, I'm talking about as far as other academic disciplines, it's not something that has been around for centuries and centuries, right? But I talk about on page 102, um, second paragraph, but um, the second, I think, full sentence there. The first one's kind of a long sentence. Um, and actually, I'll start there. Disability appears throughout the Bible. However, one would be hard pressed to pin down a single definition of disability, at least outside the most commonly understood definition, which is a direct reflection of the medical model of disability. Uh, let me pause right there. I'm going to read the rest of that. The reason I bring that up and I talk about the two models of this, the two prevalent models of disability is because, again, I think it's a matter of ignorance. Uh, most people don't know. So if you study the discipline of disability and disability theology, you have basically two models. And I think this is important for people who want to do this work to know. The medical model focuses primarily on whatever appears to be the uh, and I don't like this word, but the, the deficiency or the defect of the person with a disability. So it is solely focused on what the person cannot do. And in a lot of ways, the medical model leans heavily towards um, how do we fix that or how do we supplement that part of the person's life to, quote unquote, bring them up to a level of normalcy that other people enjoy. Now, there's some validity to that because, and I said this for a lot of us, we don't understand that uh, by the broadest definition of the term disability, some of us are part of that community already. If so, example, if you use corrective lenses like I do, um, you need some assistance with your body to bring it up to a level to where you can uh, function more efficiently. That's a medical model of disability. So because I don't see very well. I need contact lenses or glasses. Now, most people won't consider that so themselves a part of the disability community. Um, and I'm not suggesting that that you have to. But what I'm saying is based on the medical model, you fit the criteria. I always use that because I want people to see that this issue is closer to them than they think. Because we tend to think that it's those people out there. Um, but if you need any assistance with your body to help it function in a way that is deemed to be normal, then by the broadest definition, you're part of that community. If you use any medication for blood pressure, if you use 
any medication for diabetes, you know, it might not be as disabling as other uh, conditions, but by the broadest definition from the medical model, you're part of that. And that's good to know because then it gives you a better sense of empathy. So even learning and understanding what disability is. The social model, on the other hand, is um, a theory that that came up to say it's not just the medical piece that is the problem. A lot of times the things that are often disabling for persons with disabilities is the way that society itself is set up. So it might not just be that I that I need to um, have ambulatory assistance, either a cane or a walker or a wheelchair. What is also disabling is the fact that the entire world has been created to not include persons who do not use those devices. Right. So it, it's good to know and learn these things. And we don't talk about this in church because. The medical model is great for addressing the needs of the individual, but oftentimes, and I'll talk about this later on in these chapters, oftentimes it lets society off the hook because all the focus is on fixing the person with the disability or fixing their disability, not fixing the world that that excludes them because of their disability, if that makes sense. So that's why things like the ADA became important, the Americans with Disabilities Act, to say, you know, it's not just persons with disabilities. It's the fact that your buildings don't give us access. It's the fact that you don't, you know, society is not created to help us. Um, and so a lot of times the social model will say it's not just a physical, intellectual or developmental disability that the person has. It's the way that society operates that makes it even more disabling. So, again, think about those two things. The, what the social model says is the environment oftentimes is not right for helping to accentuate the gifts, the skills, and the image of God in persons with disabilities. Same way that Jesus says that the soil is not accentuating the seed's ability to produce fruit. The social model says it's not just about you trying to fix me. It's about you creating a world in which the sole focus of my life is not on what I can't do. It is on creating an environment that helps to accentuate and give me the highest potential to show you what I can do. But I can't do that if the entire world is set up in a way that only focuses on what you think is wrong with me. And I think that's a part of what has also hindered and plagued the church is that most churches are not set up to help us to see the ways that God has uniquely gifted and and skilled and given passion and displays his image in persons with disabilities because most of the way that the church is set up, it highlights what we believe is wrong with people and what we need to do to fix them. The problem is it lets us off the hook. It makes, it makes no demands on us to change whatsoever. And that's, that's the problem. And that I think is what Jesus is getting at with the soil, right? You don't get to blame the seed. You've got to focus on why the seed is not being able to produce what I've already designed it to do. And it places more demands on us on focusing on creating proper environments than it does trying to always fix people who we think are different. So I love that Jesus does that because it's one of those agricultural parables where unlike other parables, right? Here's the thing. 
when we think about when we read parables, oftentimes it's our natural human instinct. We want to be associated with the hero in the story, right? Good Samaritan, we immediately want to be the good Samaritan, right? The, par- the prodigal son, we immediately identify with the father, whatever story. Here's what's so genius about when Jesus tells agricultural parables. There are no people to identify with. He talks about a farmer who scatters seed. The guy scatters the seed, exit stage left, he's gone. And so the parable now becomes less about a person for us to identify with more so than a process that needs to take place. So it's not about a person, it's about a process. When the focus is on a process, then we understand that some of how we've tried to identify ourselves as the heroes in these stories of other people's life, Jesus takes away that excuse and says, okay, now it's about a process. It's not the seed. It's the environment. You created a process that has focused on trying to blame something that deserves no blame. What I need you to focus on is creating an environment where what I have created has the best potential to become everything that I've called it to be. And it starts with, let's create a learning environment. Let's be an environment where we start to gain understanding so we can gain insight and empathy and and camaraderie with this community that has often been on the other side of that line that we've drawn. So um, I'll continue to read um, same paragraph. Disability could be defined as a mental, physical, or emotional condition or impairment that limits a person's ability to be actively involved in essential rituals and practices in society. Again, this is page 102. As I mentioned in an earlier chapter, federal law defines it as a person who has a mental or physical impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, a record of such an impairment or being regarded as having such an impairment. So that's sort of the federal definition of it. But in order for us to learn about it, we need to understand what that means. So the reason why this is important for church is because it's defined as a person who has a mental or physical impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. For many people, especially in our country, that means a major life activity is being a part of a faith community. So we as a church don't get to let ourselves off the hook. But what we also begin to understand by understanding and learning more about the definition of disability is is that if being a part of a faith community is considered, especially in this, this country, a substantial, let me make sure I get the language right, a major life activity, then we've got to focus on why is it that people with disabilities who are one in five, about 20%, are not actively taking part in this major life activity in our churches. So remember the parable? Now we can't look at the person. We got to look at the process, right? So now I can't focus on this is this is the group of people and this is why they don't come. I have to look at the process. If if they are being excluded from a major life activity because of their disability, the focus then shifts from not just, especially for the church, not just a medical understanding of disability, but a social understanding of disability. At, and so for me, I think when that becomes the focus and that's how we learn about disability, the church shoots right up to the top of that list as one of the organizations that needs to rapidly examine its environments, examine its soil, examine its processes and figure out why that persons with disabilities and their families are not taking part of this major life activity. Because Jesus doesn't with this parable, Jesus doesn't let us get away with blaming the person. 
There's only one person in the parable. He leaves. And now it's about focusing on the process. What's stopping this seed from taking root and becoming fruitful? And we'll talk about the fruitful part in chapters seven. So part of learning then is learning about what it means um, for disability. And a lot of churches, I don't know that we've created uh, a culture for that. Um, And so because I want to get to um, the next chapter, I think one of the ways to to look at it, and I give some examples of how to create learning cultures. Uh, So I'm going to go to page 104, second uh, full paragraph from the top. One of the most important aspects of doing ministry for for and with the disability community is learning how to create long-term reciprocal relationships with individuals and families impacted by disability. In his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul brings out some pretty important points about learning choices and being constant, consistently, being a consistently caring community for those with disabilities. And so I go on to give you Galatians chapter four, verses 12 through 16, right under that in the message translation. Here's the first thing that Paul talks about. Um, He says, my dear friends, what I would really like you to do is to try to put yourself in my shoes to the same extent that I that when I was with you, put myself in yours. Man, that is such an important and powerful point as we talk about creating a learning culture, because what Paul is saying is, and if you later read, um, a lot of it is a nod to what we believe his disability, or at least one, I think that Paul had uh, more than one, Uh, but he talks about the fact, if you go on to read that some of you were so loving and caring for me that you would have given me your eyes if you could, which is a nod to the fact that he was going blind. And so in a nutshell, and I'll kind of summarize this, Paul is saying that I landed in Galatia, not because of my choice, but because of a choice my body made for me. That's the life of a person with disabilities in their families. Their body often makes choices for them that they themselves don't choose. Um, But what Paul does say in the beginning of this is he says, I would like you to put yourself in my shoes the same way that I put myself in yours. That is huge because that is the life of persons with disability. We are constantly having to to adjust um, in a lot of ways, accommodate a world that wasn't built for us. So what Paul is saying is, look, because I'm actually in the minority here and my body's making choices for me that I don't necessarily want it to make, I'm okay with that. Paul says, I I acknowledge that. But what you have to understand is, is because I'm in the minority, because I'm one of those persons who's out on the outside, I'm constantly having to put myself in your shoes because the entire world is created for people like you and not like me. Here's what Paul is saying I would love for you to do for once in your life. Put yourself in my shoes and learn my story and learn what it's like to be me living in a world that's not necessarily designed to accommodate people like me. Because the reverse of that is uh, oftentimes when you're in the minority of anything, because, you know, if you step into a room where 10 people have already decided what the room is going to look like, how it's going to function, how the event is going to go, and you step into it immediately because you weren't part of that in group, you are adjusting to their expectations of what should happen. What Paul is saying is that's the world that we live in. Nobody... Most persons with disabilities have always been an afterthought, particularly, you know, in this country and particularly when it comes to church. 
So Paul is saying, we don't often get the luxury of not trying to understand what life is like for you because we have to live it on a daily basis. I have to live life the way that you live it and experience it in the way that the life is constructed, in the way that organizations are constructed, because nobody asked us how to be. So for, for a lot of ways, not I'm going to try to say this right. For a lot of ways, persons with disabilities have learned the importance of accommodation because they're constantly having to adjust to make people feel more comfortable around them, to make people less fearful of them, to answer people's sometimes ridiculous questions about how they got that way. Right. So if you think about it, they're constantly having to adjust because the world is not built for them. What Paul is saying is for once. What I would like you to do is to put yourself in my shoes in the same way that when I was with you, I had to put myself, do you, do you know, he says, I had to put myself in your shoes. It wasn't even a choice. Um, and I think that's something that the church has to consider and get better at, which is why I talk a lot about bringing persons with disabilities and their family members to the table as real leaders in the church, because the only way that this happens, the only way we build a learning culture is to bring those voices to the table so that you can get as close as you can to what it's like to experience life in their shoes. Um, I think we've asked them to do more than their fair share of adjusting to the world that we built without considering them. Now it's time, as Paul would say, please put yourself in our shoes because we've done the work of living a life that has in a lot of ways, made you more comfortable. You haven't, remember I talked about creating a culture for a certain group of people that eliminates any kind of discomfort and sort of assures this path to ease, right? That's not the experience of those persons who weren't invited to be a part of that conversation. So everything by nature is harder for them because they were never invited to the table to construct what our churches look like. And what Paul is saying here is, look, put yourself in my shoes. Um, and so he, he goes on to say uh, a lot of things. So go back and read that. But on page 105, I kind of summarize uh, my point that I want to make here. And then I want to move on to the next chapter, chapter um, where I say, starting with people towards the middle of the book, people with disabilities live in a world that is not built for them. And the vast majority of churches are not built with disabled bodies in mind. So when Paul says, look, put yourself in my shoes, I'm not even here in Galatia. I didn't even choose to settle here, <laughs> right? That was not, even though we got a great letter from Paul to the Galatian church, his intention wasn't even to settle there. He was, he talks about, he, he came there because of his sickness. Um, but he made the most of that opportunity. Um, and really when you, when you read about it, uh, the, the, Book of Galatia, the letter to the Galatian church is Paul's earliest letter, and it's the closest to his conversion. So if you read the the, the book of Galatia, Gal Galatians, you'll kind of pick up on that because Paul has some very raw and honest thoughts about the church, right? Remember, he converted to Christianity. So he says stuff like, you know, when he's arguing with James and John, the apostles, like they didn't have, he says, they didn't have anything to add to what I had to say. You know, he's a little snarky. Paul has a little bit of attitude, but it's, it's his earliest experiences. So what you get in the, in the book 
in the letter to the Galatian church is Paul's rawest and honest feelings. Like he hasn't, he hasn't been churchified yet. <laughs> so he's not very politically correct. So when he says something like, Hey guys, for once, why don't you put yourself in my shoes and stop being so selfish? Like he means that because that's his most honest experience with the church. This is only maybe a couple years after his conversion. He's not very churchy yet. He doesn't know all the right things to say and who to not offend. Paul doesn't know all the protocol yet. Right. He's still very passionate about, you know, this call, but he's going to tell you what he really thinks. So pay attention to the stuff that he says, because he's sharing with you his most honest experience with how the church has treated him because of his disability. Now, he goes on to say that, they, you know, you guys first treated me well and then something changed. Right. Something happened. But those are his most raw and honest feelings. He doesn't pull any punches. He's saying, look, for once, put yourself in my shoes. You guys were great to me. And then all of a sudden you started treating me bad. What happened? You were you were happy to take care of me. Some of you would have given me your eyes. And then all of a sudden you started treating me bad. You started treating me like a burden. Right. And I think that's just that's also the story of the church. We started off doing this well. And somewhere along the way, we've we've lost that sense of 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 empathy. And a large part of that is because I think we stopped learning and stopped learning from persons with disabilities and trying to get close enough to their world to understand um, that, that we've asked them to adjust enough that it's time for us to start learning from them. And so in that chapter, I give a couple of stories uh, that people share with me because I often say that stories are more, much more transformative than, than statistics. So I would encourage as you're building a learning culture, go back and read that, but start with trying to invite persons with disabilities and their families to share their stories. Like what, what is it really like? What is it like to experience the church? Uh, what is it like? How can we learn from you about the things that you've had to adjust to uh, and oftentimes have adjusted to and have not had the avenue to complain about having to make that adjustment? Um, you know, there's no suggestion box for persons with disabilities. Right. And so a lot of things that they've had to adjust to, they've had to silently adjust uh, and grit their teeth and to try to somehow fit into churches that weren't necessarily built for them. Um, so I talk a lot about how to build a learning culture and go back and read that. I talk about preaching about disability. Um, I talk about toxic charity, um, which is sort of this paternalistic view of we're doing this for people look at us. Uh, I talk about that in earlier chapters about we love to sit in the seats that are closest to Jesus so we can appear to be close and to be celebrated, right? But Jesus says it's about the cup, about serving and being selfless. Um, so kind of return to that. There's a great quote in there on 114 from Robert Lupton, uh, the author of Toxic Charity. For some reason, healthy people with hearts full of compassion forget the fundamentals when it comes to building relationships with those they attempt to serve, forging ahead to meet a need, we often ignore the basics, mutuality, reciprocity, accountability, and in doing so, relationships turn toxic. So part of the learning culture is really to sit and to learn and not to assume in a paternalistic way that our job is to fix people or fix, again, the medical model, fix your disability but to learn more about the social model. How have we as a society and as a church created an environment or created soil that has prohibited you from reaching your fullest potential in Christ? And how can we do better? And it starts with learning from people and being able to put in yourself in their shoes. So then chapter six, um, 
quickly is about building a learning culture, a linking culture. So remember, again, the second part of that parable is Jesus says the seed hits the ground. They he says that they actually don't reject the message. So this is not an issue of oftentimes what we as a church, we get very defensive. Um, we like to have what I call the persecution parade. Right. When I tell people like, you know, Starbucks not putting Merry Christmas on a cup is not persecution. I'm sorry. Like I know countries where people are really being persecuted. And as a matter of fact, I worked for Starbucks for years. They never said Merry Christmas on their cups. Like let's let's stop people. Okay. That's not persecution. Right. But a lot of times we, I, what I feel like we do is we get very defensive and we use what Jesus says can't be used in the second part of the uh, parable. He says, because they receive the message with joy, right? A lot of times in order for us to justify our unwillingness to change, we position ourselves in a defensive mode to say, well, they don't receive our message. Well, Jesus says in this parable, you don't get, get away with that because the second group actually receives the message with joy. They're growing. But he says that there's something called the sun. He later interprets it as life's problems that are beating down on this group and a fall away because they don't have roots. So creating a linking culture is not just making room for persons with disabilities in their families, but helping them make roots. And one of the ways that I um, talk about that is to to help them to actually become a part of the church in ways that are meaningful so it's not just creating a room for them to go when the child is having challenging behavior. That's necessary. But how are we using the mechanisms that we already use in our churches to help them make roots? For most churches, it's it's Sunday school, it's small groups, whatever that looks like. So what I don't ask ch- churches or pastors to do anything different, what I'm saying is how much access do persons with disabilities and their families have to what you're already doing? If your mechanism for helping people get rooted in re- real relationships is small groups great now figure out how am i giving access to persons with disabilities and their families to be a part of small groups and the challenge there is also to how do we create small groups that actually meet real life issues because jesus says the problem with the second group is they receive the message with joy they don't reject the gospel you can't blame it on being defensive that they reject the message they actually like the message the problem is is that They've got some real life issues that are beating them down like the sun. And because of that, because they have no roots, that takes over. The, the number one reason that I see a lot of times in churches why families with disabilities, especially whatever the terminology you choose to use, fall away from the church is not because they reject the church. It's because they got real life stuff happening that because the church has not made an intentional effort in getting them rooted in relationships and not just programming, when the real life stuff starts happening, like medical emergencies, IEPs, insurance, fighting with insurance, all those things, it drains the necessary energy that they need to engage in something that we could actually be more helpful with. So, so one of the things that I encourage in this chapter is to help build community around them that addresses real life issues. So, for example, if you do small groups, do small groups. But can we create a small group that meets a real life need for this family? For example, can we have respite small groups? So maybe a couple of times a year, you have a small group that just rallies around that family and gives the parents an opportunity to go out. Um, A great example of that is, hey, let's do a respite for them 
during back to school time so they can go shopping for school supplies under uninterrupted. That's a real life issue, right? But if you have a small group that's not just designed to throw scriptures at them, but is addressing a real life problem, it helps them to get rooted in relationships. Um, maybe during Christmas time, you know, how can we provide you a respite night or two that week so you can go Christmas shopping? Um, vacations. Uh, oftentimes when persons with disabilities have a medical emergency and are hospitalized, the church doesn't rush to visit them in the hospital like they do with other medical emergencies. So, so because we're a little bit over time, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this up, but, um, think about how to create opportunities for rooting them in real relationships in the church but start with a real need. Um, sometimes they don't need to just come to another Bible study, right? Are there practical needs? Are there groups that can just help to provide food? Again, respite, um, other things. And I, and I talk about and give some, some great examples of that. Um, but I also, and I'll, I'll actually pick up on this on um, the 16th since we're not meeting next week. But I also talk a lot about pastoral care. I don't have time to go into it um, tonight. Um, but some of the ways that we need to adjust is to understand that providing pastoral care for families impacted by disability often looks much different than it does for um, a quote unquote typical family, right? I learned that because as I was processing my own diagnosis and I have a pastor who, who shepherds me, who guides me, I learned you can't pass me like you pass everybody else. Like I have my own unique set of needs because I live in a world that's not necessarily built for me. There are challenges that I have. And I began to learn that with the families that I was pastoring. And so um, I use David's 23rd Psalm. And again, we'll talk about that um, the next time we meet as sort of a model for how to pastor uh, families that are impacted by disability. The, the one thing I'll say about that, and then I'll wrap up, is one of my favorite parts of that section, and it starts at um, page 123, uh, providing pastoral care for special needs families. My favorite part of that, and I've taught this in conferences, um, is when David talks about God shepherding him, David is talking about it from the position of a shepherd. So David knows what it's like to shepherd, but he knows what it's like to be shepherded. And so he gives this powerful image in Psalm 23 that I think we miss. But, but what's interesting is, is that um, David in his, in his rise to becoming the king of Israel, he lets us in on a secret that we didn't really know. And I don't even know that his family knew this. So you remember he showed up to the battle with Goliath. He was just there to bring sandwiches, right? His dad was like, take some grilled cheese sandwiches to your brothers. Um, you know, they're hungry find out what's going on at the, and so he, he ends up seeing what's going on with Goliath. Well, when Saul tries to give him the armor, I don't know if you remember what David said. He said that, you know, I take care of my father's sheep and when a bear comes, I handle it. When a lion comes, I handle it. And it's like, wow, for the first time, I don't even know if his family knew this. David is letting us in on some battles that he's been having in the background that nobody knew he was fighting. So you mean to tell me you've been fighting lions and bears and we didn't even know. And my point is that as David is going through this 23rd Psalm, he talks about God bringing him to a place of peace because he knows as a shepherd, what it's like to be out there trying to protect sheep and they need to be given and directed towards places of peace. 
Here's my final thought on that. I believe that a lot of families that are impacted by disabilities, special needs, whatever your preferred terminology is, are fighting battles that we know nothing about. They are fighting lions and bears all week long. And part of pastoral care is to shepherd them into places of peace. The last thing they need is to come to our church and to run into headaches and fights and conflict because you want your program to run a certain way and you don't want to have grace for them. They don't need to fight that battle. And so I used to tell my staff at my last church, you know, we would have a shutdown at a certain time for a kids ministry. And I get it is because after a certain time, you're already into the lesson. You don't want kids coming in and interrupting. But I used to tell them, you know, if we're going to do this, we have to ask ourselves in the grand scheme of all things eternal, what big of a deal is it that they show up 15 minutes late? Do you realize the battles they've been fighting all week? They're fighting lions and bears. And the last battle they need to fight is one with the church. So um, part of pastoring them means making adjustments that sometimes don't seem fair. Um, but I tell people all the time, life is not fair and neither is God. God is not a God of fairness. God is a God of grace, right? And so sometimes that means acknowledging that they've been fighting things that you know nothing about. And the last thing they need is to come to the church and have to fight with the church. Um, but we'll talk more about that uh, on next week, because that's one of my favorite sections of the book is, is talking about pastoring in that way. So um, we got started about 805 because I usually let people in or 705 rather. Any questions? I want to honor your time because they're right at an hour. Um, any questions or comments real quick before I pray for you? Again, we'll pick up on some of those thoughts and close out um, chapter six. Now include seven and eight. So remember, next week we're not meeting. Enjoy your Mother's Day. But on the 16th, we'll come back together and I'll send out a reminder email. Um, so any any questions, comments before I let you go? Um, one person said, thank you so much for your wisdom and empathy and responding to me. We'll remain hopeful. Yeah. Hold on hope. Um, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but this is a season where I'm challenging us to not let the church off the hook. Um, part of, part of the challenge has been because it's been so difficult. A lot of us have stayed away from the church, but it indirectly and unintentionally let the church off the hook. And, and so I think we're in a season now where we, we, we shouldn't let the church off the hook anymore. And some of it's going to be a challenge, but I believe the church can do it. They've, the church has proven it can do it in first, second, third, fourth century, but us staying away is really letting them off the hook. And I think that, the, you know, as I shared this with the family a couple of weeks ago, as a Christian, it's your birthright too to belong to a faith community. Um, and so we shouldn't let the church off the hook by allowing them to continue to ignore this community that is, is knocking on the doors of the church, not necessarily because they need it and they do, but, but they love the church and they want to be a part of it. And it's, it's their right as a Christian to be a part of it too. So I remain hopeful because the church is it. Jesus didn't give us another option. He put all his eggs in that one basket. And so I got to believe that it can be done. And I got to believe that we, we, should not let the church off the hook any longer that the church needs to step up and to be accountable uh, and to do the right thing. And 
it's going to take a while. A friend of mine posted a quote the other day that I love. He says, disability ministry is more like a crock pot than a microwave. So it's going to, it's going to take some time, but I believe that we can do it. Uh, and I believe that the church can, um, can make the necessary adjustments. So, Hey, thanks again for joining us on the Autism Pastor Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, do me a huge favor. Go to wherever you're subscribing to this podcast and hit subscribe so that you get notified every time a new episode drops. And then leave a review uh, wherever you are listening to this podcast because reviews help us to get more exposure, but also to help get out this content as we are seeking to help persons and their churches and faith communities become more inclusive of those with disabilities. Again, wherever you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so that you can get notifications when new episodes drop. And then also do me a favor and drop a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Listen, I'm grateful that you chose to spend this time with us and we look forward to uh, being with you next week in a brand new episode. Peace.